teaching series that we've been in for the past couple weeks on Christian. After our Memorial Day weekend hangout, if you guys were there to kick off the summer with us, thanks for spending the, uh, that day with us. We're actually going to do that every year. We kind of want to take advantage of the time to just spend together on a beautiful day. So we're going to be doing that every year, kind of a cool little kickoff to the summer on Memorial Day weekend. And also we're going to be doing something a little bit different um, on Labor Day weekend, too, to kind of kick off the fall. Um, where we're not going to be meeting here. So there's going to be more details to that uh, uh, coming up too, so that's exciting. But after that weekend, I'm ready to jump into this series on Christian. I want to remind you why we call this series on Christian. Um, it's because that there are lots of opinions about what makes you a Christian, right? If, you, if you've read anything, if you've been around church people for a second, there are lots of opinions about what makes you a Christian, and none of them sound bad. Some of them sound bad, right? Um, but all of them uh, involve Jesus. Um, and then what happens, depending on who you're talking to, there is a variety of things that either you have to do or you can't do um, that really get you in the club, right? Like sometimes I think we've all had that kind of interaction in churches or with Christians, right? You have to do certain things or you have to not do certain things to really get you in the club, or that's what makes you a good or mature Christian. And, and really, that's where things get messy for us. Right? That's where things get messy in churches, and that's where things get messy even for us individually. And that's where things got messy even in the first century church that we've seen walking through the book of Galatians together. And that's where we're going to be today. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, go ahead and turn with me to Galatians chapter number 4. Paul just got done um, outlining the covenant that God made with Abraham. If you, rem- if you remember that from a couple weeks ago, this covenant that God made with Abraham wasn't a bilateral covenant, right, where Abraham had to do all these certain things for God to be his friend or for God to keep his promises. It was actually the opposite. It was God promising himself that he was going to be faithful and he was going to be a friend to Abraham. And Abraham entered into that covenant by believing God. And it's the same thing that we do. We outline that covenant that God made with Abraham and how we have access to that same covenant because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus by believing, by faith. Right? So like, we get in the same way Abraham or anyone else has, and it's through believing. It's not through behavior. It's not through checking all the boxes and making sure everything's right or trying to tip or balance the scales. It's through believing, right? And so Paul picks up in verse number one. He says, what I'm saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. 
different. There's a lot here in these seven verses, and there's a few uh, comparisons that I want to take our time um, to investigate together today. Remember, we're asking the question in this series, what does it mean to be a Christ follower? What does it really mean to be a Christ follower? People have all these different opinions. What does it really mean? What is it? What, what's our reference point? And how should we view ourselves? How should we view the people around us? And so you have to remember, Paul is dealing with a bunch of religious people um, in this letter in these churches in Galatia who were born into a believing family, right, because of their heritage. But, but they hadn't wholeheartedly um, placed their faith in Christ for themselves. How many of us, or how many of you grew up in like a religious family? Like, I kind of, y'all went to church, y'all was like, drove there. I've heard somebody sometimes. Uh, this one, this one uh, preacher one time, he said, I was raised on drugs. I was drugged to Sunday school, and I was drugged to church, and I was drugged to Wednesday night youth group, and all kinds of other stuff. Right, so a lot of us um, grew up in religious families, and there are plenty of people who think because of their family is devout, that that makes them a Christian. Right? But, but I, I, want, I want you to hear this loud and clear. Believing is not hereditary. Right? Believing is not hereditary. It's not cast down. There is no group that is going to get into heaven. The line is single file. That, that, that's how it works. So you can't depend on someone else's faith. You can't depend because you were a part of a family or you were a part of a certain church. But that means that gets you in. The line to heaven is single file. Right? And while you may or may not have had a background of faith where you were raised to know or believe uh, certain things about God, ultimately, you as an individual, you as an individual have to come to know and believe for yourself that God loves you. Not because of your family, but that God loves you, that He rescues you, that He sees you, that He wants you, that He offers to forgive and restore you completely, totally, fully, and eternally. And not only that, but He gives you a new nature. He gives you a new identity. He gives you a new status. He gives you a new life. He gives you a new future. Right? God's relationship is with you. That's His heart. That's His desire. That's who He sees. He sees you. And so the first comparison that we see in these verses that we run into is, is that of a child and a maturing adult. Right? In verse number one, it says, um, Paul says, what I'm saying is that as long as an heir, meaning the legal child of a father, as, as long as the heir is underage, he's no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, right? Meaning that child would inherit everything, right? But it says the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. Okay, so some things that I want to look at here to understand, that this was written in the Roman Empire about 2,000 years ago. And I've said this multiple times as we're reading through this letter that we, we need to keep that in mind. We have, we have to keep in mind the original audience who Paul was talking to when you read these verses and understand that during this time, during the Roman Empire, that children were not valued they were not afforded the same protections in the same way as children are today. Right? Children were beaten and abused or disowned. And, 
and I'm not saying that that doesn't happen now. We all know that obviously that still happens now, but it's different because then it was completely acceptable. It was completely acceptable that that's what happened to children or to your child. That's how you treated your own child. Right? Children were beaten or abused or disowned. If a child was sick or if a child had a disability, they could literally be thrown out in the trash. The poorer families would only want to have sons because they would want to make money. They needed them to make money for the family. And children were often thought of just as only property. That was the only thought behind a child is that they are your property. And if a child was thrown out, then someone could come along and they could pick them up and make them a slave. They could make them a gladiator. They could make them a prostitute. You could do whatever you wanted with your child back in the Roman Empire. That's just how children were treated. Because most children, they didn't even live to age five. The, the child mortality rate was so incredibly high. And most children didn't even make it to age five. They, they didn't even name their children a lot of times for the first six months to a year because they didn't even know if the child would survive. But children were devalued, not in the same way, or, or, or not viewed the same way that we view them now. So, so get this. The Roman Empire was a place. This world where children live were a place where the quality of your life was completely dependent on the character of your father. That, that's, how, that's how it worked. The quality of the life that you live was completely dependent on the character of your father. And that's why Paul is using this analogy to talk about God adopting us into his family, about him becoming our father. Because it's true today, right? Like this message was really powerful, really potent back in this time, but it's also true today that the quality of your life is completely dependent on the character of your father. So who do you view as your father? That's what Paul's kind of talking about today. You need to know that a lot of, a lot of people that Paul was writing to in this um, letter, and in all of his letters really, uh, that exist in these churches, they were, they were outcasts. Like the church was wildly popular among the poor, among the marginalized, among women and outcast people who had been abandoned because in the church they were treated with dignity. They were loved and received as equals, and that's how this is supposed to be. That's the reason why the church flourished and grew so much, particularly among that specific demographic. Demographic, right? And, and, and one of the phrases that I heard um, growing up is that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Right? It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how much money you've got. It doesn't matter what you look like. The ground is level at the fruit foot of the cross. God doesn't have favorites. There are no second class believers. There are no second class Christians. It is all first class. And, and so what Paul is saying here in these first two verses is that if you're a child and an heir, then you're going to inherit everything. Right? If God views you as a child, if God views you as an heir, then you are going to inherit everything. But, what he's saying in verse 2, as long as you're a child, like as long as you're small, then you don't. Right? That, that, that's how it works. Right? Kids don't get what they want all the time. Right? Like kids do what they're told, they don't get to do what they want. And, and I don't mean that in like a really weird, um, like militant way. Like um, if you come to my house, my kids get what they want very often. Right? Like it's summertime, my kids are like six popsicles a day. Right? That's just, Dad, can I have a popsicle? And I'm like, you probably shouldn't. And they're like, but can I? I want one. And I'm like, 
that you can. So, so I'm not saying that kids never get what they want, but I'm saying that my children don't get everything what they want because my two little girls, they would probably already have changed their name to Seashell and Pineapple Upside Down Cake, right? Like, it'd be something crazy like that. Kids don't always get what they want. Kids do what they're told, right? And, and ultimately, if you're a parent, you want your children, you want children to grow up and make their own decisions. But until they do, until they do, like the passage says, there's guardians and managers, right? We call them mentors and coaches and teachers. But, but you have to remember, like, this is a spiritual concept that Paul is trying to teach to these churches. This spiritual concept that in Galatia, you had some Christians who were growing and maturing, but you had other Christians who were just staying children. Remember last week, or last time we were together, we talked about legalists who came in to the church, right? And with all the answers and all the rules. And if you've been in any church for 15 minutes, like you've met these people, right? The people who have all the rules and know all the answers. But the thing is about legalism is that they're not God's answer a lot of times. It's their answer that they have. And what Paul is saying is if you still need someone to tell you what to do every single day, what you're doing is you're reverting back to childhood. Because grown adults make their own decisions, and little kids do what they're told. So what I want you to do, what we're going to see today is a handful of things that I want you to compare in your own heart and in your own mind where you are right now. So I want, you to, I want to invite you to kind of slow down and carefully consider which one of those two do you identify the most with right now? Do you identify the, the most with a child, or do you identify yourself more with a maturing adult, right? Children, when they make choices, when they make decisions, they really are only thinking about themselves. They only consider themselves. They only consider making themselves happy right now. A maturing adult understands, if I want, if I'm living my life and making decisions so that I can have my own way, so that I can have everything for myself, so, so that I can appear important, that that's no life at all, right? That actually what that does is it squeezes out, Scripture says, it squeezes out all the love that I have for the Father and also all the love that I would have for anyone else. So you have to consider, where are you at? Are you closer? Or do you identify more with a child or do you identify more with a maturing adult? And if you're like, well, how do I do that? Let me ask you this. How do you make decisions? How do you make the decisions in your life? Like not, not like what you put on today, but like important decisions in your life. How do you make these How do you make decisions? Like you might be saying, I, I, I want to think I'm mature, but like, how do, how do I make good decisions for myself? Right? It's, it's, it's not that complicated. I'm going to give you three things. So you have to consider the scriptures, consider the spirit, what does the spirit have to say, and then are you doing life with one another? Right? That's how you make your choices. That's how a maturing adult makes spiritual decisions. What do the scriptures have to say? What does the Spirit have to say? And then what do the people in my life who love me, believe in me, and know more than I know, what do they have to say? The people in my life who love God, believe in God, and love God more than I do, right? Know Him better than I know Him. What do these people have to say? This is how you make decisions as a maturing adult. So how, how do you make your choices? Like, like the last big choice that you made in your life. Like, did, did you consider those at all? Or was it more like, well, I, I, I want to make this choice because it feels good, right? It 
there's a phrase that's used in the Old Testament a lot of times um, that I throw around my house with my kids sometimes, or I throw around with some of my friends. Um, there's a passage, uh, they, they use it um, right before the flood. Typically, this phrase is used right before a catastrophe. Something terrible happens, right? It says, um, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Right? And so when somebody asks me, hey, should I do this or should I do that? I said, do what's right in your own eyes. Right? Like, I kind of do that. I'm kind of joking, but, but that's the decision. If you use that, whatever you think is right in your own eyes, biblically, when you see what happens, the examples that are there is like, man, you are right about, you are right next to a catastrophe. If you're going to make decisions, as not as a child, but as a mature adult, you consider what do the scriptures have to say? What does the spirit have to say? And am I doing life with other people that love me, believe in me, and know more than I know? And what do they have to say? So, so he goes on in verse number three with more compa- comparisons. Verse number three says, So also, when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. That sounds interesting, right? Number four. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son. Watch the language here. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption to sonship. Paul is saying, listen, you are either a slave or a son. Those are your two options. You are either a slave or a son. That's your identity. That's how you view yourself. It's either something you live for or it's something you live from. If you're a slave, you're always working so that you'll have approval. If you're a son, you don't work for approval. You don't have to. You work from approval. It's a completely different sense of identity, right? A slave is measured by how much they produce or how much they perform. And the son is secure because the love and the devotion from the father, right? Like that's, that's a really important distinction. Like a, a son is secure not because of his love and devotion that he has for the father. A son is secure because of the love and devotion that he receives from his father. It's a completely different sense of identity. It's a very, very different kind of relationship. But, but if we're going to talk about slavery, if we're going to mention slavery, I think I want to talk about that for a second, right? So this is something that I want to talk about. Slavery in the ancient world um, was very different than slavery today. Slavery is a big, broad category, and, and I, I want to talk about it. American slavery, um, but most of the time when you mention slavery, this is kind of what you're thinking of, American slavery was entirely racial, almost entirely racial. It was a lifetime status. You were set as a master's property. If you had children, they also were slaves and property of the master. People were passed down and property was livestock to future generations. And a really popular criticism of the Bible that exists today, I don't know if you, you might have heard this, but a really popular criticism that's out there about the Bible is that it condones slavery. Now, I don't know if maybe you've heard that word, but I don't believe the Bible because the Bible condones slavery. That is completely and categorically false. Okay? It's completely false sense of thinking of what slavery is. So that type of slavery that we mentioned or that we think of when we think of American slavery is the type of slavery that's mentioned when you think of uh, Joseph being sold to his brothers. Right? Not a good thing. Never referenced as a good thing. Actually, you meant it for evil. 
be fair, but God meant it for good. So that type of slavery was called evil. The type of slavery that we think of when we think of American slavery is the same type of slavery as the children of Israel in Egypt, right? Not thought of as a good thing at all. There's huge celebration. Passover is a thing that is celebrated um, all throughout um, the Bible, and it was because they were freed from that type of slavery. When you think of um, uh, the exile that happened, where Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all these guys were pulled into exile, that type of slavery. All, all the time it's mentioned when you think of those, that type of slavery in the Old Testament, it's always talked about negatively. It's never condemned. And even in the New Testament, um, it's in uh, 1 Timothy chapter number 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul says this. He says, we know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers. He says, this is why the law was given. It was given for lawbreakers and rebels, for the ungodly, for the sinful, for the unholy, and for slave trading. Right? So, so Paul lists slave trading, taking a free person and making them property for the rest of their life and all of their progeny. He says that that is evil. Right? So, so the next time if you're scrolling on, like you're scrolling on TikTok or Instagram or whatever, and like somebody pops up and they're like, this is the reason I don't believe the Bible is because it condones slavery. That's completely and utterly False, right? Slavery, as it was practiced in America, is anti-biblical, it's evil, um, but slavery in the Roman Empire um, was not that same thing. It, it wasn't the same category. It's complicated stuff. Ancient slavery was not mainly racist. All races had slaves. All races were slaves. But oftentimes, it wasn't a lifetime sentence because slavery in ancient Rome was used to pay debt, Right? Like, that's how it was most of the time used. It was used to pay off debt. We have bankruptcy, right? I declare bankruptcy. It's an office joke. If you haven't, you know, I'm familiar with it. That's also not how that works. I learned that lesson on the office. That's not how that works. But we have bankruptcy nowadays. You don't, you don't pay your debts. You get underwater. You declare bankruptcy, and you go through this whole process. It's not super fun, but... You, you're not enslaved to anyone. Well, ancient Rome didn't have bankruptcy, right? If you borrowed money, if you borrowed something and you weren't able to pay your debt, the agreement or the contract that you signed said, okay, well, I am going to um, work this debt off by being employed by you. That, that's, what, that's what ancient slavery was like all those times to do it. So, so one thing that we tend not to think about Right? It is that many of the people who were in these churches that Paul is writing to, they were slaves. The, the churches were full of people who were slaves. Well, what happens when the gospel comes through a town and the gospel is for everyone, right? Jesus is for everyone. And you have a master and you have a slave both become believers and attend the same church. Right? Like what happens then? You, you think that like that might be a little bit complicated of a dynamic that might happen in a church somewhere? Right? That, that's why Paul is teaching about adoption. Right? That's why he talks about adoption, because it doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter how you've been identified. When God adopts you, all of your identity changes. Right? And it says adoption to sonship. Like that's, that's the whole purpose of this in, these, in the scripture that's on the screen. This is why um, Christ came so that we could be adopted to sonship. Right? So if you're a Christ follower, you get adopted and you become a son of God. All of us. All, all of us become sons and, 
of God, right? And, and this is like another point um, of some modern criticism of Scripture that I, that I felt like I, I, it's good to kind of bring up and address. Um, some modern criticism of Scripture is that the Bible is anti-woman or sexist, right? I, I've had conversations with people like that too, where they say, well, I don't believe the Bible because it's extremely anti-woman and extremely sexist. I would like to make the case that it's actually the opposite of that. Um, when God says, I want to make you my son, this is for adoption to sonship. You have to understand, remember, this is who this was written to in this mod- in that ancient time. In that time, in that culture, men could vote, not women. In that culture, men could own property, not women. Men could testify in court, not women. Men could receive a family's inheritance, but not women. So if you're a son... As opposed to a daughter, you were in this privileged position as a son. And so when God says, all of you are my son, I am going to make all of you my son. He's saying the males and the females, the sons and the daughters, all of them occupy the same privileged legal status. Right. So, so this is actually bringing women into a much higher category of honor in the culture um, that they lived in. Because listen, that's what the gospel does. What the gospel does is it brings people into their true identity. Remember, like the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There are no second-class believers. What the gospel does is he says, hey, Jesus died for all of us, and it makes all of us his sons. It gives all of us the same standing as believers. It doesn't matter if you're a pastor. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for a long time. It doesn't matter if you follow a bunch of rules that aren't God's rules. Like, you don't gain favoritism. You don't, you're not a better Christian or a more mature Christian because of those things. We're all sons of God. So, so what, I, what I want to ask you is to think, which one of those things do you relate to the most? Slave or son? As you think about your relationship to God, do you think about it as more of a slave or more of a son? And you might ask, how do I know? How do I know how I'm thinking about that relationship? If you're relating to God as a slave, you're probably always worried if you're doing that. Think about your relationship with God and how you think about pleasing God. If If you're relating to God as a slave, you're probably always worried if you're doing enough. You might be really worried about like, making God angry. Right? I don't want to do these things because I don't want God to be angry. I don't want God to be disappointed in me. You might feel like you have to perform and produce because if you don't perform and you don't produce, then you don't belong. If you're thinking of God from, as if you, you are a slave, you probably view God as very controlling. When you think of God, you probably think of him as very controlling. Like his entire mission on this earth is to control what you do and what you don't do. And you're powerless to do anything different about it. You're powerless to do anything about it because you are just a slave. And since you're a slave, you're not in the family and you'll never be. You don't get a seat at the table. Like, listen, the hard thing about seeing yourself as a slave is that you never belong. If you're relating to God as a slave, the hard thing is that you never feel like you belong. You might look around and you see other believers, you see other Christians, you see them at the family table, sons and daughters, enjoying being in the family, 
And he goes, why don't I have a life like that? Why don't I have joy like that? Why don't, why don't I have freedom like that? Why don't I have peace like that? I, I'm going through something terrible. They're going through something terrible, too. It seems like they have peace and joy and contentment and all these other things. Why do they get to enjoy that and I don't get to? Might be because where you place yourself, how you view yourself, is a slave instead of a saint. That you know, you never feel like you get to enjoy the life of a saint. And what happens? All of a sudden, the most insidious scenario starts to creep into your mind and into your heart that there's something wrong with you. Even as a believer, even as someone who's forgiven, and all the songs that we sing, and something, there's something that insidious, something insidious and wrong creeps into your mind and your heart that you are unrepairable. That there's nothing good about you. That, that, that there's nothing worth loving. And that's what really happens. All of a sudden, you get this message that God doesn't really love you. He can't. He tolerates you. He lets you do stuff. He wants you to do stuff. He wants you to come to church and give money and do all this other stuff. He wants you to be useful, but, but he doesn't actually love you. That's what happens when you view yourself as a slave and not as a saint. But listen, the scripture teaches that Christ doesn't make you a slave. He makes you free. Jesus doesn't make you a slave. He makes you free. The verses say he redeems us. Right? With his death, he sets us free. With his resurrection, he makes us alive. And when we put our faith in him, when we bring our whole selves to him, he, is, he irreversibly brings us into his family. He brings us into his family in a way that cannot be undone. That's a beautiful thing about adoption, even in ancient Rome. This is the thing, like, that was not a wildly popular practice for someone to be adopted into a family in ancient Rome. And when you did that, it didn't matter what they did. It didn't matter if you changed your mind. You couldn't change your mind about bringing this person into your family. Once they were brought into the family, they're in the family. And you have to understand that when God looked through time and history and saw you, and saw you in your brokenness and in your shame and in your sin, he said, I love you and I want to bring you into my own family. And he'll never change his mind about that. There's nothing that you could ever do, you could ever say, you could ever think that would change the way that God thinks about you. When he looks at you, he says, you're my son, and I love you. There's a seat at the table for you. Right? Check out this scripture in verse number six. He says, because you are his son, because that's who you are, if you're a Christ follower. Because you are his son, God sent the spirit of his son, capital S, Jesus, the spirit of his son, Jesus, into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. So Abba is a Hebrew word, right? It's a word that Hebrew children would call their fathers. Right? It's, a, it's a word that, like my daughters say, they use the word daddy, right? That's what they call it. So you see Abba, Father, what, what, what that Hebrew word is, is saying daddy. And there's really something special about that that kind of pops out sometimes. I was on the phone with someone the other day, and my daughter was kind of walking and bouncing on rocks, and she, um, she kind of clicked with that straight away, that first word out of her mouth. Daddy! First word out of her mouth. And I said, all right, I got, I got to jump in and do this. When my daughter falls into my lap at night when we're watching TV or something like that, and I said, Daddy, I love you. Right? It's just special. There's something unique about that. And when you relate to God as a slave, I want you to hear this. 
when you relate to God as a slave, you refuse to allow your heart to cry out to God. You refuse to allow your heart. You're stopping the way your heart truly longs to cry out to God and how He truly longs to hear it. That's what you have to understand. It's not just how your heart is longing to cry out to God. It's how your God in heaven, Abba Father, it's how He longs to hear you cry out to Him. Not as a slave, but as a son. But this is all that we hold. I'm going to ask them to go ahead and come up and play some more with us. This is our inheritance. We were talking about being an heir. This is our inheritance. This is the promise. Abba, I belong to you. There's a, a book by somebody named Brennan Manning. I don't know if you've heard of it. He's a former Franciscan priest. Um, he's an author of a book called Ragamuff Muffin Gospel. If you've ever read that book, it's a really good book. I'd recommend everybody read it. But he also wrote a book called The Furious Longing of God. Just the title. The Furious Longing of God. Because when I first actually wrote that title down in my notes, I wrote it as The Furious Longing for God. As if my longing for God must be furious all the time. But when I get to it, it's realizing that God's longing for me is furious. The love that He has for me is wild. I can't get my mind completely wrapped around it. And in this book, He kind of writes a prayer that, that I want to encourage you consider to adopt into your own life. It's only five words long, and the prayer is, Abba, I belong to you. Abba, I belong to you. So you take this prayer into a quiet place, right? And with the rhythms of your breathing, everybody can take a deep breath in with me. Ready? One, two, three. Thank you. 
God's people for all the ministry one day are going to be healthy, loving, safe, provided for inside a reconciled family. And so this morning, with your head bowed and your eyes closed, I asked earlier, what does it mean to be a Christ follower? What is it? What is a reference Thank you. 